I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Uh, Chris. Jesse. Dennis. Yo. I call this emergency liturgy guy podcast meeting to order. Everybody yes. present, say aye. Okay. So just, uh, you know, <laughs> I know that dude, I've been, I love uh, that you both did that. That's great. We are one brain some, in some ways. Hey, you know, I've been binge watching uh, the liturgy, not the liturgy guys, the Brady Bunch. Brady Bunch? Yeah. I knew you were going to say the Brady Bunch. Right either that or Calvin. How is that different from uh, non-quarantine days, Dennis? Uh, it's pretty Ooh, much weird. <laughs> But, you know, um, Mike, the dad, of course, always like calls these family meetings, you know, to say stuff. And so here you are, Jesse, you're kind of the liturgy guy's dad calling this emergency liturgy guy's meeting. Well, I think this is an emergency liturgy guys meeting because we have a big thing happening this weekend. I know it's called Holy Week and Easter. Yeah, the the Triduum, as as some people call it. The Triduum. And a lot of these places won't have a congregation. And there's a lot of new things happening here, and I don't know how to process this, much less probably a parish priest. So, so that's that's what Chris is here for. This yes. is all of your 25 some years of liturgical training. This is the culmination of your training right now. What right. do we do, Chris? Oh man, trumpet fanfare and yeah, everything. yeah. Well, save your trumpet fanfare. At least, at least don't uh, uh, waste it on me. Yeah, I've uh, I've had occasion to say a couple of times over these last weeks that I'm not nearly as smart as I thought that I was. Because oh, we, we knew that. We totally knew that. Oh, I'm glad you know it. He you finally can... admits it, Dennis. Oh, it's true. No, it's true. You're the smartest liturgy guy oh, I know. Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> no offense, Jesse. None taken. That's an absolute fact. Uh, yeah, th- these are truly interesting times. Obviously, for, uh, I mean, for, for very many reasons. But what is um, what I've been working on a lot uh, recently with the help of many others is um, helping my bishop and helping other people to try to, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk. And I suppose, Jesse, you in a particular way, since you're a dad, and I suppose you too, Dennis, there's a lot of talk about what people are supposed to do if they can't go to the Triduum. But there's been much less talk about how priests are supposed to go about mm-hmm. celebrating the Triduum by themselves. I know. Are and, they calling your office and asking questions? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm trying to help my own bishop send out um, guidelines on how to how to go about this when it's uh, there's so few people there. And uh and, and part of the problem is, is, and I, I almost hesitate to do this kind of a podcast. I think it needs to be done, but there's so many variables that uh, differ from place to place that it's it's almost an impossible podcast. So, and part of the reason is this: is that right? So. A priest in a parish has to take into account government regulations, whether those are federal or state. You know, Jesse, you're in Illinois and Dennis, you're in Kansas. I'm in Wisconsin. They're probably very similar, but they could be you know, quite different about numbers of people who can gather and things like that. Um, the Holy See has is issued two sets of guidelines that you can find online, one from March 19th and one from the 25th. And these are but they're very general in nature. And again, it's a little unclear how, I mean, are they, are they suggestions? Are they guidelines? Are they hard and fast rules? Who are they written for? And of course, then the U.S. Uh, bishops offer their own suggestions. Uh, but very oftentimes, those are in private communications with uh, bishops. And so the priest might not know them. But do you know why I turn to you, Chris? Why? Yes. We, because you didn't tell us because you're Mr. Humility. I had to read it in Adorama's bulletin that you've been appointed what <laughs> to the Bishop's Committee on Divine Worship? What are you called? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you're, you're a consultor? Is that what you are? A, a consultor. Yeah. 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 And I had yeah. to hear it via a text from Dennis. Yeah. So, come on, yeah. Chris. You're your own worst uh, agent. But anyway, yeah. our yeah. own yeah. liturgy guys, Chris Carson, I know you're all embarrassed. Consultor to the BCDW of the United States Bishops. Yeah. That is freaking awesome. If I had a bell, I'd ring it. But yeah. now this yeah. is why we come to you because you're our consultor, liturgy guys, consultor. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, thanks for that. Yeah. But I tell you, the secret to being the secret to being a good uh, uh, liturgist, I think, or good anything, is no is having very smart friends and people who are generous and willing to (laughs) talk to us anyway. (laughs) So what what we were doing, uh, um, principle that's not the right way to say it, but for Adoramus, we've had this author who's a a liturgical institute student, Monsignor Mark Karen. Right, he's in the doctoral program, I think, Jesse. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, Monsignor Karen is a priest of the diocese of Portland, Maine, and he's a liturgy. Uh, professor and director at St. John's Seminary in uh, Boston. Uh, very good priest, very smart guy. And for Adoramus, for months now, he's been writing a, a series called uh, uh, Liturgical Tradition. So trying to understand the, the current Roman rite in light of the history that went before it, right? So it wasn't like a brand new thing that started in 1969, 70. And when um, it looked like these uh, Triduum liturgies were going to be canceled, he approached me and he said, hey, I'd like to write a series on how a priest might go about celebrating Palm Sunday and the Mass of the Lord's Supper and Good Friday and the Easter Vigil and Easter Sunday by himself or with just a handful uh, of people. And you were like, why would you ever need to uh, do that? I know. And and you've talked about the Paschal mystery and the candle and the incense and the deacon and the layman and the priest. And now there's just going to be one guy doing it, right? Right, right. And so what, Mons- what Monsignor Karen has done uh, for, for Adoramus and, uh, and for, for me personally, I tell you, I've gotten the type of uh, education on this that I, you know, it, it would be much more enjoyable if it were like theoretical discussions and things like that in the classroom. But right, there, there are priests who need to celebrate the Mass of the Lord's Supper in a few days. Uh, how can we go about helping them? And so Monsignor Karen, I've been t- working with him, but as well as uh, Father John Grant and Jeremy Priest and, you know, my other go-to people to try to, what do you think Those about Those names this? sound familiar too, you know, Chris. Other, other LI guys, uh, uh, Father Father Grant now directing liturgy in the Diocese of Tulsa and Jeremy Priest directing liturgy and other things in Diocese of Lansing. So we, we've all been helping each other in this regard. Uh, and so uh, what I thought we'd do in this podcast is uh, really kind of two goals. One, to suggest to priests um, you know, just to help them kind of look at all the different angles, maybe some of the things that they're not thinking of, you know, in the end, uh, it's, it's, it's their local bishop who should be giving the most direct, uh, um, advice and guidance on this and not, you know, me or the liturgy guys or Adoramus or things like that. But if we can help priests to kind of think through these Triduum liturgies in a way that, because they still have to be celebrated for the glory of God and the sanctification of the faithful, they should be as beautiful as possible. And so we want that to happen even under these restricted circumstances. But I think it would be helpful too, just for the people As I said before, you know, we've had lots of ideas about you should do this in the home on Palm Sunday or this in the home on Good Friday, but to kind of help the people understand what it will be like for their parish priest celebrating these uh, themselves. All right. So that's without feet to wash, without feet to wash. Yeah, there's not going to be any of that. So maybe just uh, by way of. uh, So we'll talk about the evening mass of the Lord's Supper. We'll talk about the Good Friday liturgy and we'll talk about the Easter vigil, just some especially some things that will be different. But I think uh, still laying the ground before we get into those um, there, there's kind of three possibilities that could that could happen, I think, for a priest in a parish. Uh, and again, this is depending on what state you're in and what Episcopal guidelines you might have. But in Wisconsin, for example, and maybe you guys can attest to this in your own states, uh, we have this uh, policy called safer at home. And when people do gather, there can be no more than nine, which is to say nine or fewer. All right. So this could be one option that a priest could be joined with eight other people. Maybe that's a deacon. Maybe that's a cantor. Maybe that's a reader. Maybe that's a couple of servers. Right. So there's one option as a priest and eight other people, nine other people. This will depend where you are. The second option is uh, what's called mass at which only one minister assists. And part of, part of the, the, the problem, I think, with some of these things is a matter of terminology because we hear about no public masses or private masses. Oh, you know, I've heard the word private mass a lot, Chris, and there ain't yeah, no such thing, yeah. right? Well, at least not in the lexicon of uh, the Roman Missal or the general instruction or the church, right? So they talk about mass at which only one minister assists or maybe by extension, two ministers, okay? And there's a section in the general instruction of the Roman Missal, and so 
priests out there, if this is your circumstance, it might be good to refresh yourself with these paragraphs in the germ number 252 to 272. All right. So that's a second option. Maybe it's a priest and just another minister, maybe two. And the third option, which perhaps some priests will encounter is it's just them. That's it. And in the uh, in the general instruction at number 254, it says this can happen for a just and reasonable cause, which I don't think anybody is disputing that these times would necessitate this type of priest celebrating on his own. But what it says there at number 254 is if it's just the priest, then the greetings, the instructions and the blessing at the end of mass is eliminated. All right. So going into this, you could have three at least uh, different types of celebrations you know a priest with nine others a priest with one other a priest by himself and all of these will will vary a little bit all right so with that being said uh here's a couple of things that come to us from you know principally from Mon monsignor care and you can read all of his entries in full at uh, uh .org. again fathers take these as you find helpful uh read them in light of your own uh, bishop's uh, directives but let's start with uh with Holy Thursday, all right? So on Holy Thursday, there's really two masses that can take place. There's the Chrism Mass, although that can be moved to another day in Holy Week. And it's been my understanding that some of the dioceses in the United States are celebrating these with like the bishop and the deans or the vicars for rain. Uh, others are just postponing them. And I think this is what Pope Francis himself did, is he just postponed the Chrism Mass to another date. But the, the, the other Mass on Holy Thursday is the evening Mass of the Lord's Supper. And what, if you were to read, for example, these two directives from the Holy See, from the 19th and March 25th, you, you, you read that there are three principal things that uh, are different. One is the washing of the feet, which has always been optional, is to be omitted entirely. The second is that the procession at the end of Mass with the Blessed Sacrament is also eliminated. And the third thing is that the... Um, Blessed Sacrament is returned to the tabernacle and there's none of the there's it's not to be taken or or um, at least at the end of the mass to uh, another place of reposition outside of the sanctuary or, or the church. So you, right? you mean the, the original normal place of reservation tabernacle, right? They're not doing the procession to some other tabernacle is what you're saying. That's that's what the Holy See is saying. All right. Okay. So but then the question says, well, OK. What about the other stuff then? Is that still a part of it? Is it not a part of it? And so what Monsignor Karen offers for us is kind of a, all right, this seems to be how you might go about celebrating the Mass of the Lord's Supper. So let's just walk through that uh, quick. So do you remember how the Mass of the Lord's Supper begins? What's kind of distinctive about that Mass on a normal year? What would you not see or whom would you not see in the church at the beginning of the Mass of the Lord's Supper? The congregation? No congregations there. Oh, okay. Who is not there? Remember, if you don't know the answer to a liturgical question. Jesus. Jesus, right. So the Mass of the Lord's Supper begins with the tabernacle empty, right? Because Holy Thursday is the birthday of the chalice, the birthday of the Eucharist, the oh. birthday of the priesthood, right? And so... Um, even the altar is not dressed yet. No, the altar is dressed at the beginning, at the beginning, okay? But it's not going to be dressed at the end. Okay, right. so that's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah, so at the beginning of the Mass of the Lord's Supper, uh, it still appears that a priest would have the tabernacle empty, right? So th this is what's so difficult about this. You know, well, which norms are suspended, omitted, deleted? Which ones remain? All right, and so uh, we're trying to still set a high bar because we want this to be beautiful. God needs to be worshipped the way God wants to be worshipped, as Cardinal George uh, would say. Uh, so ideally, at the beginning of the Mass of the Lord's Supper, even if a priest is by himself or with eight other people, the tabernacle is empty. But other things ought to begin. Mass begins as usual. Uh, in uh, many places, bells are rung at the Gloria. Does that happen where you guys are? Are bells rung at the Gloria? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that uh, can still happen. Liturgy of the word takes place as usual. Uh, as we said before, is uh, the washing of the feet is entirely omitted. I mean, it's optional anyway, but this year it's just to be omitted uh, altogether. And also 
know, we talked about this before on a podcast that there's kind of a remarkable thing that happens at the preparation or uh, the, the preparation of the altar and the gifts is that not just bread and wine, but gifts for the poor to be brought forward too, because this is the day of the mandate to, to love one another. Well, that seems to be omitted as well, because there's, if, especially if there's no faithful uh, to be there. Uh, what else would you not see at the Mass of the Lord's Supper is, you know, the sign of peace, but that's been omitted for quite some time uh, already. And so at this point, then Mass has kind of been as usual on any other Mass of the Lord's Supper, except for the washing of the feet. But when we get to the end, this is where we get to that other element that is omitted, and that is the procession. So, but the question, and I remember Monsignor and I and others went round about this. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean then that Mass concludes just like any other, say, Sunday Mass, right? So you have communion, you put the Blessed Sacrament away, you pray the prayer after communion, blessing and dismissal. Maybe, at least to a certain degree, but I don't think so. Because do you guys remember talking about how these Triduum liturgies um, begin and end normally? Well, it's one big liturgy, right, across the days? Right. It's like a, a, it's one liturgy that expand, spans three days. And so the, um, the Mass of the Lord's Supper never ends, just like any Mass that ends with the uh, exposition of the, or the adoration of the Blessed Sacrament never ends with a blessing and dismissal. Mm -hmm. And so while a priest may consider just putting the Eucharist back in the tabernacle immediately after communion, there's certain, there really shouldn't be uh, any type of blessing or dismissal because Good Friday is going to pick up sort of in the same liturgy in phase two. Which is uh, normal anyway, right? Right, right. Yeah. So that's, that's how uh, Holy Thursday would end in any other year. And it appears that it should end that way too. So how does the Mass of the Lord's Supper end then? Uh well, option one, which we don't think is the best one, is the priest would just return the Blessed Sacrament to the tabernacle after communion, say the uh, prayer after communion, and then depart or stay in it for a period of adoration. Or what could happen is after communion, uh, the priest would leave the uh, Blessed Sacrament in a ciborium on the altar. He'd go over to the uh, chair and he'd say the prayer after communion. And then he'd go back to the altar. He'd pick up the ciborium and he'd take it to the tabernacle. Maybe that's six feet right behind him. You know, imagine the tabernacle being in the sanctuary, or maybe uh, he's got to take it to the tabernacle if it's in a side chapel. You know, some parishes uh, have that. But there's no really accompanying incense. There's no procession with ministers. He's just, he's just taking it to that place. He would put the ciborium inside, and the rubrics for the Mass of the Lord's Supper say that he would then incense the ciborium, which is now inside the tabernacle with the door mm -hmm. still remaining open. Mm -hmm. And then he would uh, genuflect and he would close the door and there's no final blessing or dismissal. And so what he would have to do then, just like on any other Holy Thursday, is he could divest himself and then divest uh, the altar as well. This is the stripping of the altar that... Uh, one of you mentioned a little bit ago, but then he should spend some time in adoration. Just, uh, I mean, the Holy See is, hasn't eliminated adoration uh, of the Eucharist from the Mass of the Lord's Supper this year. Again, you know, maybe a local diocesan directives have, have mixed this up. But again, the, the mystery remains on Holy Thursday that the Eucharist was born on this day and kind of its twin brother is the priesthood. You don't have one without the other and they spend time together. And I, I don't know what you guys think, but, you know, I'm I'm sure I'm sorry that I can't uh, be there to adore. But there's something about my priest standing in my place, worshiping the Lord for my sake that I think is uh, kind of comforting. You know what this hey, is making me think of? Chris? Oh, so you're going to say something, Jesse? Yeah, I just want to connect the dots here because in, under normal circumstances, you would have the Eucharist put in an altar of reservation, correct? Yeah, under normal circumstances, you would set up an altar of reservation that might be in another part of the body of the church, like the nave, or in a uh, adoration chapel, or in another place that you're just setting up for that night. Maybe it's in the narthex or vestibule. Maybe it's downstairs and you're just setting up a table, right? But the Eucharist rarely, on, on any other date, does not go back to the tabernacle. But this year, it's going back to the tabernacle. So that's one thing that's changed. But the other rites that surround 
the conclusion of Holy Thursday still seem to be in place. This again, this I think people of good and orthodox and reasonable faith can disagree about that. But um, this is this is one one way where this might happen. Well, so I'm just trying to use my critical thinking skills and put two and two together. What about this is different? Well, the congregation is not there. And so because the congregation is not there, we're not using that altar of reservation. So that makes me think that those two are connected, that because there's a congregation there, there needs to be an altar of reservation. Or am I just overthinking that? And this is just a simplification process for the rite itself on Holy Thursday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you're going about this the right way, right? So you, so you read these things from the Holy See, or the which which are general by their nature. You know, they can't legislate down to you know to the to the detail for every single parish around the world. They're general, and so you're doing the right thing, trying to think. All right, well, what is it? What is the mind of the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments? And and this is what Monsignor Karen is trying to do too. I mean, th- there's a lot that that's unclear. So he's like, all right, how can I interpret these in a way that's uh, faithful to the legislation is keeping with the tradition that's trying to still maintain a beautiful liturgy. Uh, it's familiar with the books. It's familiar with the history and trying to come up with a proposal that fits all of that. Um, I think it's the right one. But as I say, you know, others might, uh, I think, could disagree. But yeah, you're going about it the right way. All right. Well, that's edifying. Dennis, you wanted to say something. Yeah, you know, a, a reasonable question that might come up is, well, if nobody's in the church and nobody can be there anyway, why do this at all, right? Now, I'm not arguing for that position. I'm just saying this could come up. So someone's going to watch it at home. And so it's edifying for them. But I think the bigger question here is something that I learned from Jean Hani, my new favorite author, H-A-N-I, in his book, Divine Craftsmanship. And he makes the point that God didn't stop creating the world on day six and then sat and looked at it. He actually continues the glorification and the creation of the world through us. So he's given the mission of sanctification to the church. And whether or not there's one person or a hundred people or zero people in the church, the offering of Christ to the Father in this ritual sacrifice of the Mass and the extended liturgical life of the church is the process of continuing God's creation. He uses us to do it. And whether you're watching at home or watching in the same room, that process of sanctification of the world and continuing creation until the end times is happening nonetheless in the liturgy of the church. What do you think, Chris? Dennis, I think, uh, I think exactly. you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'll say the stupid things around here. Uh, no, uh, you're, you know, that, that, that's absolutely right. You know, it's not. Like Jesus, whether it's after day six or Jesus ascended, now he's just reclining, hanging out, not doing anything at the right hand of the Father. He is still doing his work during the Triduum liturgies as much this year as he did last year and as he did 2,000 years ago. And the three of us and our friends and our families are still in need of his saving grace this year as much as we did last year. So the kind of that sacramental medium or point of contact is sadly uh, not there for us, but we still have our work to do and Jesus is still working for us. So you're right. Uh, there, there's work to be done and we're doing it to the best of our ability this year. And in our individualistic mindset, we kind of say, oh, well, if I get holy, I'm in heaven, almost like there's a, a bouncer at the door, you know, and you're on the list because you've done enough holy things. But think of it more in the broad sense of God's plan is to give everybody the opportunity to be part of the kingdom, which means to be like him, means to be him, to be divinized, to share in his own divine life. And that does not go away just because we're not in the church, right? They're Mm -hmm. watching it online, but it's still part of our job to contribute to God's plan by being glorified and allowing ourselves to be glorified, even on Facebook, strangely enough. (laughs) Yeah, very well said. All right, let's let's go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, is that that – Kind of put a pin in the Holy Thursday? Part, partly. So what uh, what should happen then, again, at the end of the Mass of the Lord's Supper, even if, if it's Father Bill all by himself or him with a couple others, the altar is stripped. Uh, any crosses should still be uh, veiled or removed. Um, and at some point, again, we kick this around a lot too. Uh, it, it's suggested that the Blessed Sacrament now be removed from the tabernacle and taken to you know, a place maybe in the, in the sacristy, not an altar of reservation necessarily, but another place where the sacrament might be uh, stored safely. Because how does Good Friday begin? Do you remember that? Uh, with a procession. And what? No. <laughs> it's, in, it's in silence, right? 
There's no it's sign of silence or anything because they're just continuing the liturgy from Holy Thursday. Right, right. But even on a normal year, there's no sacrament in the tabernacle, right? Yeah. Because it's it's been generally removed. And so, you know, it, it appears that it could reasonably ought to be removed this year too, even if it's just a, a priest by himself or a few others. Because when Good Friday comes, you know, the only thing that the Holy See has said is different about Good Friday. Two things. One is that the kissing of the cross by the faithful is omitted. Only the priest celebrant does that. And two, there's an 11th petition or intercession for the universal prayer. But those are the only things that they've said should be different this year. So again, you know, reasonable people, pastors trying to ask himself, all right, well, does that mean everything else still remains? And again, you know, uh, local bishops might give more precise information, but it appears that if it's possible, we should try to do the rest of these things. And so one of those would be uh, the removal of the Blessed Sacrament. So that when Good Friday begins, tabernacle's empty, the priests enter uh, not in a procession, but in silence, and they uh, prostrate. Uh, he prostrates on the floor of the sanctuary. The altar's bare because it was the night before. There's, uh, there's nothing on it. Um, it begins as usual. When we get to the Liturgy of the Word, and I don't know what you guys watched yesterday for Palm Sunday, but uh, what do we usually encounter for the Liturgy of the Word on Good Friday? The passion, yeah, the, yeah, with all the different parts, yeah, with all the different parts, right? So this will also this will still have the passion, but probably it might not be read in those different voices. And you know, this is an option really on on any Good Friday. I mean, we've come to expect, I think, especially in this country, that it might be uh, read in its different parts. But when, when I looked at it, the USCCB website for the reading, it didn't even have it parsed out by. Right. I, that was something that was kind of shocking to me because yeah. I had only ever seen it put in uh, by parts. Exactly. Like, can they do that? Just read the gospel and straight through? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they can. And that's probably what will happen uh, like I did on Palm Sunday, probably on uh, Good Friday as well. One of the other things. Can I interrupt that, you for a second, Chris? Sure. Now, sometimes priests are in a one priest parish and they're alone, right? What if someone has another priest that they're in the same Rectory, anyway, can you do this with you know two people and up it a little more with some incense or processions or something? Or is this only if you just have one priest or is this the norm for this time? No, there, there's none of the norms about how the passion is read have been changed, at least by the Holy See. Again, it may vary from diocese to diocese, right? And so this is what we're all trying to figure out, okay, so what this this question that you're asking, Dennis, is um, how should we do this? So if, yeah, if you still have, uh, if you can gather with 10 or fewer people and you want to divide the reading up in the traditional way, you can do that. I mean, I mean not just the reading, but everything we've been talking about so far. Uh, yeah, I mean, if it's, I, I think even in my own diocese, we'll have some parishes that get together with a pastor and nine other or eight others, as is the case here, we'll have some parishes who will just be a priest with a couple others, and we'll have some parishes who will just be the priest. That's it. Okay. And so, you know, what's possible then will vary according to how each pastor is going to go about it. So everything you're saying is, if you only have one person, this is what you ought to do. This is not, you must do it this way just because it's coronavirus, right? Uh, I think I understand your question. Uh, you know, I, I do think because there's coronavirus and these other things, <laughs> so many of these liturgies are just outside the norm. Every one of them, you know, again, whether that's how people are hearing confessions or uh, whatever it might be, it's just not meant to be this way. And so none of this stuff is going to be ideal. So a lot of these things that are taking place, even if legitimately are not necessarily intended to, uh, to do that. So th th there's a lot more leeway going on this year. I have another quick question. Chris. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned at some point, some of the um, dialogues can be omitted if there's no congregation present. But if a priest is streaming this, mm -hmm. uh, at least the, the mass that I've been attending, the dialogues are present. And then yeah. my family and I respond to those dialogues. Yeah. Is there, can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, in fact, both in the Holy Sees directives, and I think probably too in uh, many diocesan directives, and, and even Monsignor Karen will make this point in what he's written for Adoramus is, you know, especially if these liturgies and masses are going to be recorded or live streamed, I mean, that you, you kind of have to up the game a little bit if for no other reason that you
you have people participating in some way virtually. So, yeah, I do think if if it were streamed, the priest would continue with the dialogues and he would want to go to the extra effort to include as much of this as possible. Yeah, but I mean, if it's, if it's just, you know, a priest by himself, he doesn't say the Lord be with you. Uh, and also with me or anything like that. Yeah, I've noticed some online pastors or priests are saying mass, answering the dialogues themselves, and some aren't. I don't know. Normally, yeah. you'd say that the priest doesn't answer himself, but if there's nobody there to respond, it yeah. does seem a little funny to have that silence. Yeah, but then again, Dennis, I think you know th- we're just in a thing that's not accounted for by the books, and a lot of stuff is going to be out. So much is outside of the norm. So you know, I, I think there's some some legitimate latitude. Okay, Chris has a liturgical right. heart after all. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's try to uh, finish. Oh, I, what I wanted to do, because um, we may or may not see this, is the whole, The I think the USCCB, but then the other day, the Holy See uh, released an 11th uh, petition for the solemn intercessions. And this was one of the, this was the second thing that at least the Holy See wished would be different. Are you saying be- that they turned it up to 11? Yeah, this will <laughs> go to 11 this year. <laughs> Uh, and it's, uh, if you don't mind, I would just, uh, I know reading things makes for bad podcasting, but some of us might not otherwise get to hear it. This is the one that came out last week uh, from the Holy See, right? And so how normally this would begin is a deacon or another minister would give this introduction. He would say, let us pray also for all those who suffer the consequences of the current pandemic, that God the Father may grant health to the sick, strength to those who care for them, comfort to families, and salvation to all victims who have died. And then he may or may not say, let us kneel, and all people pray for this intention in the silence of their heart, you know, kind of making it, applying that in particular ways to people they know who are under these circumstances. And then he says, let us stand. And then the priest would collect all of these things, and he would say this prayer. Almighty ever-living God, only support of our human weakness, look with compassion upon the sorrowful condition of your children who suffer because of this pandemic. Relieve the pain of the sick, give strength to those who care for them, welcome into your peace those who have died, and throughout this time of tribulation, grant that we may all find comfort in your merciful love through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. And you wrote that as a consultant? That's great, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that one came from Cardinal Seurat. Ah. So, and he's not been asking my advice on anything. Not yet. yet. He will. Yeah. He will. Oh, we thought of that joke at the same time. <laughs> okay. A couple more things about Good Friday. So after the petitions, um, then uh, let's see, there's the showing of the cross, and that takes place in a couple of ways. Uh, the first one is uh, the priest stands at the altar and he unveils a covered cross that's covered in a violet cloth. And he, uh, you know, he unveils uh, parts of it at a time and he sings, Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the salvation of the world. All right. Uh, the second option is the priest or deacon in this instance walks through the nave of the church. Uh, but maybe if there's nobody in the nave of the church, this option seems maybe not the best one. But that's there's no veiling in uh, the second form. And then after the cross is uh, shown to the people, uh, this is the other thing that the congregation says is that it's it's adored by kissing by only the celebrant. So if the priest is there with a the deacon or even other I guess they wouldn't be concelebrants necessarily, since this is not a mass. It's only the priest himself who venerates it. But what Monsignor uh, Karen suggests, and I think rightly, is even uh, in those years where there's so many people that not everyone can adore the cross uh, in a you know reasonable amount of time, is that the priest can sh- elevate the cross and people can adore silently for some time. So this would be one of the ways in which you know, the other handful of people who may be in the church and even the people at home might venerate too. I'd say if you are at home, just take that crucifix off the wall, but the priest might elevate that uh, for some time. I think that's a great idea, mm-hmm. especially for stream people watching uh, live. Yeah. All right. And so this then is how Good Friday ends. Uh, and again, it doesn't appear that anything has changed in 2020 as from 2019. So the uh, altar is prepared, right? Because it's naked at this point. Altar cloth is put on it, corporal, Roman missile, candles. And then the cross itself is carried to near the altar. And it's set down there along with the two candles that had accompanied it. And then the priest or a deacon goes to the place where the Blessed Sacrament had been reserved outside of the sanctuary, apparently, and he brings uh, the Blessed Sacrament back and the communion rite uh, takes place as described just in the Missal. The Missal, uh, there's a rubric 
in the Missal that apparently still ought to be followed. It says the Blessed Sacrament is either returned to the tabernacle or back to that same place from which uh, it had been uh, um, uh, returned know, before. And then the ministers uh, genuflect to the cross and depart in silence. And then the, the, the altar is stripped uh, once again with only the cross remaining between two candles. And that seems to be the end of Good uh, Friday Liturgy. All right. Uh, should, should we go on to uh, Holy Saturday Easter Vigil? Yeah, I think we should. I'll, I'll try right. to keep this quicker. So <laughs> what, is, what, is, what is change for the Easter Vigil? All right. So in these decrees from the Holy See on the 19th and the 25th, they say a couple of things. That one, there's no fire outside the building or inside the building for that matter. Two, that fire is not blessed in any way. Three, there's no procession into the building with the candle. And fourth that for the baptismal liturgy, the only thing that is to be retained is the renewal of the baptismal promises. So I think most at least um, bishops are interpreting this uh, as there's no there's no initiation sacraments. All right. So those are the uh, things that are explicitly so sad. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot to be sad about this. All year. those catechumens <laughs> waiting for this day. I know it. I know it. So let's just walk through this quickly. Um, so since there's no fire outside, what Monsignor Karen suggests, and I think rightly, is that the ministers would walk into the sanctuary in silence. There's no entrance antiphon or entrance chant for the Easter vigil. And the priest would probably go to the chair. It's conceivable he could go to the candle stand where the candle might be waiting. And then what's brought to him is the Paschal candle. Let's imagine he's at the chair. The Paschal candle's brought to him. The missile's brought to him. And some server has a taper. All right, so once he gets there, then the lights could be turned off or at least dimmed. Uh, he's going to have to have some light to read by, but it seems like the church ought to be in the darkness. Again, we're, we're just trying to figure this out. What's the best way this might work? <laughs> Again, Jesse, if this is live streamed, I don't know how, how practical that is to turn off all the lights in the church. But in any case, when everybody turn the lights off in your living room, uh, well, yeah, well, why not? So when everybody's in place, then the priest would begin with the sign of the cross and the greeting, just like the missile says. And then there's this instruction that uh, he would find in the missile. But what then is skipped, what he would otherwise say, he would bless the fire. And that's explicitly mentioned by the Holy See to be uh, omitted. But what doesn't appear to be omitted is the preparation and blessing of the candle. So after the sign of the cross, the greeting, and the instruction, he would prepare the candle just like is described in the Missal. So that's where he would carve into the candle the sign of the cross and uh, the Alpha and the Omega and the year, which, you know, the Paschal candle 2020 is going to be one, <laughs> one for the ages. Uh, the insertion of the grains of incense, and then that candle would be lit, so a server would have to be there with the taper or something. Uh, and then he takes the candle and he does this acclamation, which is in the Missal. May the light of Christ rising in glory dispel the darkness of our hearts and minds. And, you know, I'm going to take solace in the fact that my priest and my bishop are going to be saying these words, which is precisely fits the bill during this year. So... After that, what would happen is the candle would be placed in its stand unless it's there already. The deacon, if there is one, would ask for the priest's blessing, and then he would go over and uh, sing the exultant, just as per usual. Now, uh, what the missal does say, and this is always a confusing thing on a good year, is when do the lights come on? Uh, the missal is very clear that they come on before the singing of the exultant. Some places uh, desirous to be a little bit more creative, do it during or after the exalted or after the Old Testament reading, something like that. I think if the lights are off, we should respect what's in the missile and put them uh, to their full force uh, before the exalted. And then those present. So again, after the priest lights his candle from the Paschal candle and the flames are extended to the other seven people in the church, for example, after the exalted, those candles would be extinguished. All right. So then after that, there doesn't appear to be anything changed for the liturgy of the word. All right. So there's nine potential readings in all. Um, some, the some of the seven readings from the Old Testament can be uh, eliminated. But then after uh, the readings and the homily, this is where it gets a little bit confusing again. 
So what the Holy See says is in the baptismal uh, promises, only the renewal of promises at number 55, they even put a paragraph number, are retained. All right. So what's confusing is and many people have asked, well, do you still bless the water before the baptized renew their promises and then sprinkle them with that water afterwards? And again, I think some disagree, but what the Holy See, when it mentions only number 55, that's the paragraph that just has the verbal renewal of the promises. So it doesn't appear that the holy water is blessed beforehand, nor that the people are sprinkled with it uh, afterwards. So the after the, 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 let's see, after the homily, priest goes to the chair, those present renew their baptismal promises. Yeah, Dennis, this is this is another one about, you know, how does the priest do this? If it's just by himself, does he say, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? I do. Does he answer himself? Well, I, I guess so. I sure <laughs> hope he does. <laughs> so anyway, so uh, the renewal of baptismal promises, uh, then the universal prayer and then the liturgy of the word. And from that point on, the Easter vigil seems to be pretty much as it would be uh, any other year. So any questions about the vigil you guys can think of? I I can't think of any right now. I have a lot of questions in general, but not specifically about the vigil. Yeah. Yeah, And I I guess, you know, maybe again, my, my parting word is just how I began all this is this, is that, you know, fathers, if any of you listening to this out there, I mean, don't take my word for it. Start with what the Holy See says, start with what your diocesan bishop says. Uh, but then if any of these uh, insights can help you kind of picture in your mind's eye how you might go about these three liturgies uh, over the Triduum, then then I hope they're, uh, they're all for the good. But, you know, celebrate them faithfully and beautifully and uh, know that your people love you and are counting on you to do that. And we will be with you uh, in spirit, which is still a real way that we can be uh, together to, um, uh, during this time. But um God bless you, priests, for your own work during yeah. this time and during Holy Week. Pray for priests. People who aren't priests often forget that a priest loves his parishioners, loves his people, and relies on them for human contact and appreciation and admiration and all that stuff in a good way. And uh, they're alone, too, and they're maybe not as used to it. So I was talking to a priest friend by text yesterday who said that he feels kind of sad. You know, he just misses his family, so to speak, and they need prayer. So pray for ourselves. Pray for priests too. It's almost like all the priests have become hermits now. And they didn't sign up for that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right, Chris, um, do you still want to answer a liturgy question? Uh, I no. think you just answered all the liturgy questions. <laughs> oh, I have so many liturgy well, questions. Well, and again, a real uh, shout out and appreciation to Monsignor Mark Karen for uh, uh, compiling these. He's, he's got great insights. and um, uh, These are on the that. site now. The yeah, all of these are available. I'll link, to, I'll link them to in, in the show notes. Yeah, they're all up at uh, adoramus.org. Okay. All right, well, let's answer a question. All right. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Jesse, do we have a question? We do have a question. question. We do have a question. This week, we have a question from Nathan. Uh, Nathan is referencing a meme that he saw on Facebook, which is always the best way to start a liturgical dialogue. (laughs) That's from my experience, personally. Uh, he said about a month ago, he saw a meme on a page that seemed to imply there were inadequacies in the modern book of blessings, even going so far as to say it didn't bless anything. I'm pretty confused as to why someone would say this. Is this a common argument? I was hoping you could explain how the modern book of blessings came to be and how it differs from what existed before in terms of liturgical language and blessing formula. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a great question. I love it. We, we've talked about blessings, Chris, before, and it's a very surprisingly complicated thing, isn't it? Like, what is a blessing? Do you bless things? Do you bless people? Do you bless God? What does it mean? And I know you're my hero for having some answer to this. So what do you mm-hmm. say? Yeah, it is a, it is a difficult uh, sort of question. Uh, let, let me say this, that a blessing is a form of sacramental. And sacramentals, the church says, bear some resemblance to the sacraments. And so it's up to you to find out where they resemble sacraments and where they don't. But I think insofar as a sacrament is made up of uh, form and matter, that's to say a formula of words, as well as something uh, tangible or sensible. That's the material part, right? So sacramentals, like blessings, are similarly composites of form and matter. They're hylomorphic is how Aristotle and St. Thomas would uh, would say them. And I suppose uh, in very brief terms, right, we, uh, we have, the LI has a whole semester course on sacramentals and blessings. And so Can you we're, just surmise that whole thing in a yeah, short We just <laughs> take the next three minutes and wrap that up. All right. But, but here's, here's some things is that a blessing in Latin is benedictus or benedicere or in uh, Greek is eulogia, which means good words or to speak well. So blessings are fundamentally word-based, which means in this system of having formulas and matter, there's an emphasis on words. Now, that can, uh, they still need to have a material element for them to be sacramental. Other words, otherwise, it's just talk, talk, talk. Uh, but it's true, the current book of blessings is emphasizes words over visible uh, 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 material things like signs of the cross, holy water, and blessing, all right? You might say by comparison that the Rituale Romanum uh, prior to, or I suppose even still in use now in the extraordinary form, is very strong on visible elements, holy waters, blessings, pouring of salt in the sign of the cross, purple stoles, white stoles. It's really good on that. But the nature of the words is a little bit different. So ours are principally scriptural words, and I don't know that's the case in the Rituale Romanum. Uh, the nature of the Rituale Romanum is that they're supposed to kind of grow from local cultures. So like universally, there's there's very few of them, but then they're meant to meet needs of particular times and places. And so what had happened over the course of the centuries with the Rituale Romanum is the, 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 the orders of blessings, you know, varied from place to place. And some of the words and some of the signs were better than others and things like that. So... I think it's a matter of uh, emphasis, as uh, David Fagerberg would say, uh, between the Rituale Romanum and the Book of Blessings. The current Book of Blessings is pretty verbose, which in some ways is justified because that's what a blessing is. But uh, Dennis, you know, well, both of you guys will know, you know the council had this real emphasis on uh, on cognition and being easy to understand and things like that being very mental. And so they're a little thin, the current book of blessings on its signs. So for example, even uh, maybe this is 10 years ago, perhaps it's 15. The The congregation uh, for the doctrine, no, Congregation for Divine Worship had to say to priests that even though the book of blessings doesn't tell you to make a sign of the cross, go ahead and do that mm-hmm. because it was so anemic on the sign part and so robust on the word part. But maybe one last thing about the words. The thing that you'll find in the book of blessings is they do bless things. If if God is a thing, they bless God. And, you know, it seems that, you know, for for many serious minded Catholics who are upset that, you know, God is an afterthought and too much liturgy is anthropocentric, that here along come some words and they're all about God, you did this, God, you did this, God, you did that, God, you're great, God, you remember all that, that this should be something that we're, I don't know, approving of because the they bless and praise God. So anyway, there's some rambling thoughts on book of blessings. But I, maybe you can address this, Chris. One of the things I think that gets people nervous is when you go to the book of blessings, rarely does the prayer say, bless this candle, this metal, this rosary, whatever. It says, may the person who uses this be mm-hmm. blessed. And so it doesn't seem like it blesses the thing that you're asking it to bless. Can you address that? Yeah, well, it presents a hierarchy of things to be blessed. The first is God. God is praised, adored, blessed before anything and everything else. Second of all is people. 
Uh, it says in the catechism somewhere that people are blessings and are to bless, right? We are made in the image of this good word, this speaking God. And so we are the second things that are blessed. And then insofar as candles and holy water and automobiles and whatnot help us to praise God, then those things are blessed. So there is a reasonable hierarchy between what is blessed and what isn't. In my own opinion, and I Try not to take it upon myself to evaluate the church's liturgical books in any particular way, but rather to receive them and understand them with some uh, degree of docility. I do think the current book of blessings kind of downplays our human nature that uses stuff and wants to see things set aside for sacred use. And so uh, what, what I've often wondered is when the book of blessings gets revised, like every single book does if we might not see some more of uh, things, objects uh, receiving blessings uh, that are uh, conveyed through more visible signs than we do now. Nathan, I love that you asked this question because, Chris, it was about three or four weeks ago that I had a similar conversation with you because um, I just purchased this. I have it right right here. Uh, it's oddly enough, it's actually holding up my microphone, but it's the the Catholic book of household blessings and prayers. And I was mm -hmm. lamenting that I wanted to see a little more of those actions or rubrics in some of these things to help me understand uh, what was going on. So I think this is a kind of a common um, confusion among Catholics about what's actually happening there. So thank you for providing some clarity. Yeah. And there's a little more in the Catechism, uh, paragraph 1668 and 1669, and that uh, explains a little more about blessings. All right. Well, uh, I hope that answers your question, Nathan. And if you have a question for us, you can tweet us at the Liturgy Guys or actually at Liturgy Guys or email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet Dennis at DMAC Super Taster. Taste more than you do. Or send a star chart with the day you were born to Chris at. You know, I was just about to go out and get me one of these uh, tweeters. Uh, and then, <laughs> then, the, then the quarantine started, and that's why I didn't get to the to the you tweeter know, store. You, you, you just just get a woofer. You don't need a tweeter, just a woofer. Dennis, I think you and I should run a burner Chris Carson's Twitter account. I think that would be, be awesome. Yeah. I don't even know what that is, but I don't like the sounds of it. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, have a good one, guys. Thank you, and all God right. bless. Bye-bye. Now that's a podcast. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. <laughs>